to see all of you here. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. So great to see you guys this morning. And it's exciting to me every week. More and more people seem to feel comfortable coming back, being here physically. And I'm, I'm so happy for that. It's just great to see some of you today, even behind a mask for the first time in a long time. Um, and to all of you watching online, I'm so glad you've joined us today. I hope you're well. I hope you're having a great morning. And uh, look forward to seeing you soon as well. So, um, I want to begin today by telling you about a study that psychologist Martin Seligman did to explore a phenomenon he had observed, observed called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. The first part of the study might offend those of us who love our pets, but here it is nonetheless. Uh, so he had uh, he did a, conducted a, a study around learned help, helplessness on three groups of dogs. One group of dogs uh, were given electric shocks that they were able to turn off by pressing a panel. The dogs in the second group were um, given shocks that persisted regardless of their actions. It didn't matter what they did, they just continued to get shocks. And the third group of dogs uh, received no shocks at all. Well, then they took these three groups and, and put them in boxes where they could easily escape. And they were, again, each group given electric shocks. The dog in the first group, who'd been given the shocks earlier but could, could do something about it, easily escaped the box when, when shocked. The, the, the second group of dogs who who had not been able to stop the shocks earlier, just uh, laid there as they were shocked and whimpered, didn't even try to get out. The dogs that hadn't been shocked at, at all easily escaped the boxes. The, the dogs that had been shocked and not been able to do anything about it had learned that they were helpless, that they, they couldn't um, do anything about their situation. Um, there's a, a, another study which may offend those of us who love human beings. And, and it's a little simpler. There were two groups. One group of, of people uh, were, were subjected to loud and unpleasant noise. And um, there was one group, they were able, when that happened, to stop it. And then there was a, another group subjected to the same loud and unpleasant noise, but regardless what they did, they couldn't stop it. And later, when both of these groups were subjected, subjected to a loud noise that they could have turned off if they tried, both groups, those in the second group, those who had not been able to do anything about this unpleasantness, they just resigned themselves to their predicament. They, they gave up. They didn't try. And this was uh, Seligman studying the subject of learned helplessness. I read about this phenomenon in a book authored by the famous Harvard professor Tal Ben-Shahar, where he was writing about nihilism. He wrote that a nihilist is a person who has given up on happiness, who has become resigned to the belief that life has no meaning. And he said that nihilism leads to a belief that nothing we are or do matters, so why should we even try? Why do anything at all? 
So let, let me suggest this, in line with the teaching the last couple of weeks. If we buy into the story that what we are and do doesn't matter now and forever, then it's difficult to have hope and to defeat despair. I'll say it again. If we buy into the story that what we are and do doesn't matter now and forever, then it's difficult to have hope and defeat despair. I might let uh, some of you know, because we've not mentioned this for a while, that as you see the, the, uh, uh, the stuff on the screen behind me, and there will be a lot of it today, that you can follow along on the TLCC app, which I was standing in the back listening to the slow jam of the comments, and I heard them making fun of me. But I actually have gone to the T... Well, my assistant helped me get to the TLCC app. And on the app, you can follow along with the life notes, follow along with the sermon. Uh, and even if you want, for whatever reason, a lot of people enjoy filling in the blanks. I tried to stop doing that one time and got uh, so much feedback that there are blanks to fill in. Uh, and I think, do we have physical copies uh, of, of the life notes these days? Or is it only, it's only, okay. Well, anyway, so you can follow along if you want on your phone. And don't pay any attention to the text messages you're getting from anybody. So, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy fell into a deep depression about the time that he turned age 50. He had written and published his two masterpieces, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, but followed those works in 1879 with an autobiographical account of his spiritual crisis. He, he called what he wrote then, uh, a confession. And in a confession, he associated his despair with the thought that nothing he had done or could do really mattered because everything would be destroyed by his inevitable death. Here's part of what he wrote. Before I could be occupied with my estate, with the education of my son, or with the writing of books, I had to know why I was doing these things. Is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitable, inevitably approaching death? Is there anything that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? Tolstoy, as he worked through this crisis, eventually moved from an, a nihilistic worldview to following Jesus, and he moved from despair to a life endowed with meaning. He found hope in the teaching of the New Testament that in fact everything wouldn't end when he died, but rather live on into the age to come. Again, here's part of what he wrote, Tol Tolstoy. Every answer of faith gives infinite meaning to the finite existence of man, meaning that is not destroyed by suffering, deprivation, and death. He found meaning, he said, quote, in living a life as it was meant by God to be led. This matter of meaning is no small thing. Each year, somewhere around 40,000 people in the United States of America take their own lives. Worldwide, nearly a million people commit suicide each year. And those who study this tell us that their research uncovers that the cause of this epidemic of despair is that far too many people simply cannot find a reason to live. 
They don't believe that life has meaning. And they don't believe that what they do matters. It's only logical then to to understand that a lack of meaning leads to a sense of helplessness that causes people to simply give up. Nihilism is the logical story or the logical end to a story that does not begin with God. Nihilism is the logical end to a story that doesn't begin with God. I submit that there's a slippery slope from theism to nihilism. A theist believes that there's a God who created the universe and people and had a loving reason to do it. The nihilist believes, again, that there is no God, that life has no meaning. The path from theism to nihilism, though, typically passes through deism and naturalism. Let's, let's discuss these four stories for a few minutes. First of all, let's talk about theism, or what I prefer to really call biblical theism. The last several weeks we've been teaching about the God described in the Bible. And we've said that, that the God described in the, in the Bible is infinite and personal, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. This is to say that He is infinite, He is beyond knowing, Yet at the same time, he is a person. He wants to have a relationship with us, so he's made himself known to us so we can. He is transcendent, meaning beyond our world, and imminent, meaning he's chosen also to be present in our world. He's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. He's sovereign, meaning he's involved in the affairs of the world and our life and will bring it to the end that he desires. And he is good. The only thing that limits him is his character. He will only use his power in ways that are in alignment with the fact that he is good. This is biblical theism in brief. Again, if you're interested in hearing a lot more about that, you can listen to the teachings the last couple of weeks. You can go online and find them. And then there's deism. A deist believes that there is a God who designed and created the universe, but that he has left it to run on its own. The deistic story is that God is infinite, but not personal. God is transcendent, but not imminent. The God of the deist may be all-knowing, but it doesn't matter because he doesn't care and he's not involved in the world that he's made. Therefore, the deistic God is not a good God. And then there's naturalism. James Sire wrote that without deism, naturalism would not come so readily. Deism is almost a passing phase, almost an intellectual curiosity. Naturalism, on the other hand, is serious business. So what happens is that once someone starts pulling at the threads, that unravels what Scripture teaches us about who God is, there's a slippery slope that ultimately takes you to a place where nothing really means anything at all. So theism May, some may then become deistic, but, but it's hard for people to stay deistic. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy for them then to slip into naturalism. Naturalism is the prevailing secular story of our age. This is what I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The naturalist says that there is no God and that the universe and all of us are the result of a freak accident that occurred in a somehow preexistent material world. 
At least two of the macro narratives we've discussed in recent weeks are based in the story of naturalism. I just remind you of, of two of these macro narratives. The pessimistic secular story. The pessimistic secular story. In other words, this, this is one form of naturalism. It's, it's, a, it's a pessimistic story that says life is the result of a cosmic accident. There is no God, no divine cause, no divine purpose. Someday the universe will run out of energy and cease to exist and it won't matter that we ever existed. It's easy to see how this narrative leads to nihilism, isn't it? But the logic gets more difficult to deal with when you look at the other macro narrative, a secular story we've been discussing in the last couple weeks, which is the optimistic secular story, which you hear a lot. This story is being told in a lot of ways and lived by a lot of people in our society. This story says, yes, life is the result of a cosmic accident, and the story ends when our lives end. But the optimistic secularist says that we can make up our own meanings and we can create the conditions for human flourishing. My question, though, is how can one be optimistic when they believe this? Because when the story is followed to its logical end, it really then doesn't matter what we are or do because it all ends when we end. It's still naturalism. It's just naturalism with a smile and a naturalism that's totally illogical. So ultimately then, it leads to nihilism. I submit to you, sadly, that once anyone constructs a story that does not begin and end with the God described in Scripture, that nihilism is inevitable. The ni- this is important stuff, guys. The nihilist says there is no purpose or meaning to existence. And to this I would say at least the nihilist is honest. As opposed to the person who believes there is no God, there is no divine cause, there is no purpose, but we're still going to try to do something good in this world that's going to run out of energy and no longer exist, and it won't matter whether or not we ever existed once we die. The nihilist at least is honest enough to say there is no purpose or meaning to existence. So, look, my friends, it is okay and normal for us to search, to try to answer the existential questions that nag our souls. It's normal. It's good to do that. But in the end, I submit to you that the only thing that makes sense, the only story that gives us meaning is that the beautiful God described in Scripture made us, has a plan for us, loves us, cares about our world and our lives, and wants to be in relationship with us now and forever. I can't help but be reminded of the the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes as he desperately searched for meaning and then finally concluded that meaning could only be found in God. His words are are powerful, poignant. Ecclesiastes 1, the, the teacher says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I have seen all the things done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He said he tried to find meaning in pleasure, but this was his response. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He tried to find meaning in work and achievement, but he said, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He tried to find meaning in money, 
But he said, finally, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. I mean, this describes how a lot of people in our world feel. It describes how some of us feel sometimes when we get kind of off center and forget about God and who he is and his story and what everything means. I really think the writer of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, expressed the human angst most of us feel at some point in our lives. Here I am doing all this stuff, but what does it mean? As the King James Version has it, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But thankfully, the teacher reaches a positive conclusion in Ecclesiastes because he begins to speak of all of the activities of life in a bigger context. He begins to see everything he's doing, and he's really not doing anything dramatically differently. He begins to see everything he's doing, though, in light of a bigger context, in light of God and purpose and eternity. And therefore, the same activities which were meaningless, now became meaningful. Because in the light of the transcendent, life has meaning. So now, when he starts talking about work, he starts talking about finding meaning in his work because he understands his work is being done in, the, in, in light of a God who purposed him and has a reason for him to work. And the same with pleasure, and the same with money. Ecclesiastes 3.11, here's what the teacher says. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. He's still working. But he's working in light of a larger purpose. Eternity is in his heart. He sees now these things as a gift from God. And what he was decrying as meaningless, now he celebrates as being beautiful in its time. Ecclesiastes closes with these two great scriptures that in a way explain all of life. It closes like this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, someday, beyond this life, what we will have done in this life will have mattered. And the way to connect to it mattering is to respect God, do what he says to do, because someday what you've done is going to matter so much that you're going to be held accountable for it. So for life to make sense, our story must begin and end with God. Now for my money, next to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, there are two verses I I think of frequently that for me describe the whole purpose of life. Now we'll dig into it a little bit more over the next few minutes, but these are two verses that for me describe the very purpose of life. The first, Revelation 4, 11, 24 elders a group representing the church is standing before before God's throne and they're singing songs of worship. And this is part of what they say. Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I submit to you, if you can keep that simple thing in mind, that all, all of a sudden, everything in life is assigned meaning. When we understand everything in life was created by God for God, created by God and for His pleasure. Another verse that I think of a lot when I think about, you know, what is life about? I think about Colossians 1. We've talked, talked a lot about this last trimester, but this is where Paul said, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything. Everything was created through Him and for Him. So He is first in everything. When you understand biblical theism, there's this God described in Scripture who created everything that is, and He did it for His purposes. And our job is to figure out what those purposes are and to live the entirety of our life with that as our ultimate goal. That's when life matters. That's when life has meaning. That's when everything in our life is, in, is, in, is, is endowed with meaning. So with all of that kind of introduction in mind, let me then spend the rest of my time talking through four meaningful words. Four meaningful words. Everybody doing okay this morning? So here's the first one. Vocation. Vocation. Now, now, when I use the, ver the word vocation in this context, I'm using it in a theological, technical way, if you please. I'm referring by, to what we were made to be and do. I'm not talking about your job. Your job would be a part of your vocation. I'm talking about this bigger idea. Vocation, as I'm going to speak about it for a few minutes, refers to what we were made, what this God this transcendent God made us to be and do. Genesis uh, chapter 1 begins to tell us this story when, when we're said, when we're told this is in the, in the earliest part of the God narrative. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. He's telling here specifically these human beings that they're to partner with him in, 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 in stewarding everything on this planet. Now, one way that we get at the idea of vocation is to talk in terms of being image bearers. We were created in God's image. And part of that means that we are to represent God in this world. We are to do His work in this world. We are to partner with Him to fulfill His purposes in this world. It's quite common uh, to see scholars describe the idea of being an image bearer 
in terms of angled mirrors. Kind of maybe a little difficult to get this in mind, but, but an angled mirror reflects what's below up and what's up down. Can you, can you see that? should have a picture of it on the screen. I'd even understand it better. Angled mirrors. We're, we, so we are the image of God, meaning that part of what we do is we reflect all the glory of the created world back to God in worship. And we reflect who God is into this earth. This is part of what it means to be created in God's image. One way that I like to talk about this is worship and work. The worship part being what we're offering from here up to God. The work part being what we're offering from up there to the world around us. So when we're talking about uh, worship, we're talking about a life dedicated to the glory of God. We're reflecting everything good about God in our lives, these things that are beautiful and it's time back up to God. And, and then when we talk about work, we're talking about what we're doing in this world so that the work of God that He created us to do. In the beginning, what did He say? I created you in my image. Now, partner with me on the planet. I have a job for you to do. I have a reason that I made you. Another way I like to talk about this is relationship and rulership. Relationship corresponds with worship. Rulership corresponds with work. Uh, so um, when, I, when I think about relationship, I think about the fact that part of what is really intimated, not even specifically said in the Genesis narrative, is that, that, that the, the man and the woman have a, an intimate relationship with God. He shows up and walks with them in the cool of the evening. Also, part of relationship is they had an intimate relationship with one another. Part of the Genesis narrative is that, that we weren't created to be alone. Relationship speaks of the fact that much of life's meaning is found in our relationship with God and, and our relationships with each other. And then there's the rulership part. The rulership part is actually the more specific part of the Genesis narrative. God says, I want you to exercise stewardship over the earth. I want you to represent me on the planet. I want you to do my work. So just to dig into those just a little bit more. First of all, the worship or relationship part. I believe we find our deepest sense of meaning when we are in loving relationship with God and people. So let's focus for a minute on our relationship with God. When we worship, when we pray, when we see God's handiwork in nature, when we feel His presence, we know life has meaning. As Dostoevsky said, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and will die of despair. So we find tremendous meaning in living life, reflecting everything good back up to God, and, and it being involved in worship and in, and in relationship with God and with, with people. And then we also find deep meaning in doing work that matters. We must 
each find a way, whether in our professions or volunteering to serve in meaningful ways, to join with God and do His work in the world. We were made to do this. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you want to have meaning in your life? Figure out what works God prepared for you to do and do them. Uh, There are studies, I like studies that, as most of you know, that verify things that are taught in Scripture. There are studies that show the, the that being involved, pursuing meaning, ultimately leads to a greater sense of well-being than pursuing happiness. The studies will show that when people do things to pursue happiness, just things to bring them pleasure day in and day out, that that initially they feel better, but three months later, they 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 don't feel so good. But the people who pursue meaning, which oftentimes means making sacrifices, working harder than you need to, uh, it's uh, volunteering on you know MLK Plus Life Day might you know it would have been easier just to sit in front of the TV, but you decided to do something meaningful that perhaps in the moment it you know the stress level may be higher. Uh, having children, for instance, if you just want to feel good every day and be happy. You know, don't introduce into your life the challenges and stresses of having children. But all, but any of us who are parents know that we're glad we decided to have sleepless nights instead of to do whatever the heck we wanted to do every day because ultimately having children, though it has its difficulties, brings meaning, right? And, 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 and sometimes happiness. So, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. <clears throat> I just saw Christian. He walked out of the room. He didn't hear that. But, so, so, so the, the, here, here, when, when we live a life where we're pursuing meaning, meaning, here, here's the deal. We don't just have a greater sense of being three months from now. We have a greater sense of meaning a thousand years from now. Because the meaningful things that we do now last forever. See, our story... The story of Scripture is that life doesn't end when we end. That what we do that's good matters now and forever. There's this teaching in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, and then I'll build on it with uh, 1 Corinthians 3, which tells us that at, that at the end, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is actually a good thing. This is something to, to move our lives towards. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, our works are going to be revealed, whether they were good and last forever or whether they weren't good and, and don't. And there's this great scripture that says that basically that the things that we've done that are good are going to last forever. It says that our works are going to be tried by fire. I, I, I don't know if that's a literal fire or a metaphorical fire, but I, I, I tend to think in this case it's metaphorical. But our works are going to be tried, and, 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 and we're going to find out if our works were gold, uh, uh, silver, and costly stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. So the fire is going to reveal our work and the things that we did that are precious, that are meaningful, gold, silver, and costly stones will just be refined by the fire and will live on into eternity. But the things that we did that were wood, hay, and stubble just burn up. They're consumed. The meaningful work we do, 
The good that we do will last forever and give us a sense of well-being, not just in the moment, but for eternity. The good work that we do will go on forever. Here's the second word. The second word is sin. The most common, I'm going to redefine sin for a lot of you, though some of you have heard me teach this a number of times, this part of this. The most common Greek word translated sin in the New Testament literally means a missing of the mark. A missing of the mark. See, when we think about sin, we think about things we do that we know we're not supposed to do according to how God designed life, right? And we could list all kinds of sins. But, but, but sin really means missing the mark. And what happens is that when we miss the mark, then all those things we do that we call sins are byproducts of this bigger thing. So you have to think about it like this. When God created you, you were like an arrow in God's bow. And he aimed you at a particular target. But he decided when he let you go that you'd have free will to determine whether or not your life went where he wanted it to go or whether you took it someplace else. This has been true. This is true for Adam and Eve. And this is true for every human being since then. God says, here's what I plan for you. Work, worship, relationship, rulership. Partner with me. Be in relationship with me. Know me. But you can choose whether or not. And what happens is, is when we decide to, to move our life in a different way than how God designed it, we miss the mark. And when we miss the mark, it means we miss the whole purpose of life. The question that we have to ask is, is the focus of my life, my relationship with God, is the focus of my life representing God and His kingdom in this world? And I submit to you, if the answer is no, then we're living in sin. How can we expect to live a life of meaning if we are missing the whole point? Here's the third word. You're going to think it's unusual for me to, to, to use negative terms. But I think to get at this point, I need to. Here's the third word. It's death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The price we pay for missing the whole point is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Now this makes perfect sense. Follow my logic today if you can. God has offered us the opportunity to live life as He designed it to be lived. He's aimed us. He's given us direction. He's told us what our life should be about. To make Him first. To be in loving relationship with Him. To join Him in His work. Now, here's the deal. If you don't want to live life as God designed it now, then why would you want to live it forever? You should see death as the logical conclusion to missing the mark. You should see death as getting what you wanted. See, this 
is the promise of naturalism. This is what naturalism tells us. Whether it's the pessimistic story, the optimistic story, the fact is when you die, that's the end of the story. That's their story. Our story is, yes, if you choose to not live the way God designed you to live, the end of the story is death. It's eternal separation from God and His purposes. But it's a choice you make. It's a decision you make. On the other hand, if you decide to buy into God's story, the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, you get to live forever the way God designed you to live now. Now see... Some folks, some folks kind of messed up about that. I don't have time to get into this, though there's a lot of past teaching we've done about this. And they think that, they, they think the eternal future are soulless bodies floating around on clouds somewhere out there, which is not a biblical teaching. The fact is, our eternal future is going to happen uh, in... A new, a renewed earth, a new heaven that come together where we are resurrected to live in our bodies. They'll be glorified bodies, but they'll be different in some ways, but the same in many others. We know that because we know that was true of Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. And we're going to live on this renewed planet to do what God made people to do in the beginning. Some people think God's kind of changed his mind about what he wanted. You want to know what God wants for eternity, look at what God wanted in the beginning. Some people are going, I never thought about that. Well, you should think about that. Because when we make the choice in this age to dedicate our lives to God's intended purpose, to work and worship, to relationship and rulership. What we're doing is we're setting ourselves up to actually live that life with Him forever. He didn't change His mind for what He wanted for human beings. All of history is about God getting human beings back to what He planned in the beginning. So when we cooperate with Him now, when we partner with Him now, when we live the life He planned for us now, God says, you know what? You got the point. Now, I'm going to give you the ability to live with me and do this forever. And on the other hand, if we say, you know what? I'm not going to buy into God's story. God says, well, I guess then you buy into the story that when it's over, it's over. And you're not going to have the opportunity to do this with me forever. See, when you have this perspective of life, if you're thinking at all, your life has incredible meaning. What we do now matters forever. Which causes me then to come to the last word. And that word is life. I know I just skipped a whole bunch of stuff, guys, but good luck finding where I'm at now. Someday I'm going to preach everything in my notes just to see if people stay for the whole thing. I just jumped a couple pages. Oh, well. Life. Let's talk about life. This is what we're offered by Jesus. Life now and forever. I challenge you now, let God's story get a hold of you. There's this, I mean, look, guys, 
I'm not going to say that today's sermon is a great sermon. I, I, I don't know about that. But I do know this. The content is life transformative. This is big stuff. And you can just kind of hear a sermon and go on, or you can let this thing get a hold of you to where you understand the incredible implications of what it is to live life in partnership with God, literally, now and forever. There's this passage in Philippians. I just like the language here. It's where Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Here God is saying, I want to get a hold of you. And all we have to do then is turn around and say, and I want to get a hold of you. I call that an embrace. Well, I'll close with this. It might be kind of silly. In fact, it is kind of silly. Sharon and I have a dog. His name is Dietrich. It's a miniature schnauzer, a German breed, and we named him after the German philosopher and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. All right? It was a gift we were given that we didn't want by two of our kids, not including Christian, just to be frank. And now, of course, we love the stupid dog. And the stupid dog loves especially me, actually. It's an amazing phenomena. And uh, so here's the deal. Dietrich, he, more than anything in the world, he wants to play Frisbee. I mean the dog desperately wants to play Frisbee. And more than anything else, when I throw that Frisbee to him, he is so happy. And he goes and gets it, but then he comes back. Now remember, more than anything else, what he wants. He wants me to throw that Frisbee, but he will not give it to me. And he's too fast, and I can't catch him. And it's a frustrating thing, and I have to go through all kinds of trickery to actually get the stupid Frisbee back in my hand. Well, the second biggest thing he loves to do is he loves to go on a walk. Oh, if he can just, you say, we're going to go on a walk, his little tail just starts going like that. But the dog, when you bring the harness out, will not. Just simply take three steps and get in the harness. He wants it. He wants, look at his tail. He wants it. Oh, he wants to go. But he will not let us get a hold of him. He just won't. And it's so incredibly frustrating to know that the thing he wants the most, he just won't quite Take a few steps and just jump in. See, I think that we often run from the things that we want the most. Our souls long for God and the meaning that He brings, yet we won't let Him get a hold of us. Some of you are watching right now. You've been, you know, you saw Dietrich. He flirts with you. You've been flirting with this church and, more importantly, with God for a long time. You're kind of, you sit on the edge of your seat sometimes. It's like, I see this. I understand. I was made for God. But you just won't reach out there and take a hold of the God who wants to take a hold of you. Some of you 
come around here with some regularity. Something about this draws you. Something in your soul that you don't even understand feels and wants. Whatever it is that's going on here, and somehow you've come to understand it's more than good music, and, and, and it's more than an inspiring message. There's something happening, and you're starting to get, it's probably God. And I would say at some point, you just, you just have to return the embrace. You have to know that the God of the universe sees you, loves you, cares about you, has a purpose for your life. And at some point you have to say, I surrender. It's as if God is saying, if you just come closer, I'd give you life. If you just let me get a hold of you, come here, surrender, believe. I want you to have more and better life than you ever dreamed of.